Well, thank you. Thank you, especially to Deb and to Zach. Zach goes to Iowa State here helping us lead. And you all know Deb helping us worship Jesus. Thank you, guys. Um, well, welcome to Stonebridge this morning. Excited to open God's Word with y'all. We're going to be in Acts 20 today. You know, I have, I have some pastor heroes that I've always looked up to, read their books, listened to their sermons, their podcasts, still do to this day. Um, Mark Driscoll, C.J. Mahaney, James McDonald. Here's what's true about all three of those men, all three of those pastors. They've all been fired within the last few years from their jobs as lead pastors. You might think, well, it's probably because of sexual misconduct, right? I mean, that's going all around these days. Actually, no. Those guys were fired because of lack of humility. Because of arrogance. Now, I still read their stuff. I still listen to their sermons. I mean, I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, I mean, think about it. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book called Humility. That I've referred to a lot, even in sermons here. And that was his downfall. It's very humbling to talk about humility. No one ever feels qualified to talk about it. Because as soon as you think you have humility figured out, you don't. So pray for me as I speak this morning. But thankfully, you're not going to learn from me. We're going to learn from Paul. So it's going to be good. In Acts 20, we actually learn from Paul that leadership requires a few different things. So jump ahead. I just want to look at verse 19. And then we'll jump back to verse 1. But verse 19, it says, Paul was serving the Lord. With all humility and with tears and with trials. Not exactly a New York Times bestseller leadership title, right? If you were going to write a book on leadership, I don't think you would, go, you would name it Humility, Tears, Trials. Wouldn't sell very many, I, I wouldn't think. But that's exactly what Paul says is required for godly leadership. And you might be here this morning and you might be like, you know what, Matt, I'm not a leader. Really? Do you have influence on anybody? How about your significant other? How about your children? How about even your boss? You have influence on all of them, which means you're a leader. And we all need work on our leadership skills, especially when it comes to humility. Because here's what's true. Because of our sinful nature, we all naturally want to be selfish leaders like these guys, like Mark Driscoll and the others. We all naturally just want to do what, what's best for us. So we need some work on this. So I would just want to define it before we jump in and look at Paul's example. Um, humility, vertically with God, just means submitting to him, submitting to God. And we talked about that in Acts chapter 12 at the beginning of the year. And I challenged everyone to pursue, pursue humility and kill pride throughout 2019. Um, how's that going for you? And then horizontally, relationships with one another, humility just means being selfless towards other people. And that's what we see here. This is what Paul really focuses on in Acts 20. So let's start, let's jump back and look at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, 
as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the, uh, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, tongue twister there, those went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now a lot just happened. Okay, lots of travel, lots of people. So let's let's break this down a little bit. So we see here right away, as Paul's traveling, he's selflessly humble. He brings encouragement, we see in verses 1 and 2. Everywhere he goes, he brings encouragement. But he starts with right where he's at. Where is he? Well, he's in Ephesus. So uh, we missed church last week. Steve Jones, who spoke at day night for us, actually recorded the message that he was going to give to us on chapter 19. So if you haven't had a chance, go back and listen to that on our podcast or on the website. But, ver- but chapter 19 in a nutshell is this. Paul does ministry in Ephesus. Okay, and he's there for, for quite a while. And after a while, Jews and Greeks cause a riot against him and against, against the Christians. Now, why would they do that? Why, why was Paul such a threat to them? Why were the Christians such a threat? It's because this, they were threatening idol worship. And in Ephesus, idol worship was a big thing. And it was the source of a lot of people's income. So they're like, oh, all right. That was cool until you started taking away from my prophets, Paul. So you could see why Paul, before he leaves Ephesus, would want to encourage them. They're very defeated. There was just this big riot. It says right away, after the uproar, there's this big uproar. So he's like, okay, all right, let's chill out. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys some motivation to keep moving forward before I leave. So he's not focusing on himself, right? But he doesn't just do this here. He does this as he goes. He does this in Macedonia, which, which is a region where Philippi and Thessalonica were. Um, and just a little backstory. I got a map here for you. Uh, Paul's journey here. So... At the beginning of chapter 20, he's in Ephesus. He encourages them. And then he, he kind of goes around the horn here till he ends up, it says in the text, Greece. Um, and that would be this region down here where Corinth is. And that's where he spent three months. And then in the second half of the chapter, he just basically takes the same route back and then goes from Ephesus straight over to Jerusalem. But here's what you need to know about this. In Second in Corinthians, we actually learn that he didn't go straight to Corinth. So Put the back map back up. I'm sorry. Um, so he could have gone straight from Ephesus right over to Corinth. Would have been easy to do. But instead, he realized that he wasn't in great standing with the Corinthian church. He had written them a hard letter with some, with some hard things that they needed to be called out on. And so he sent Titus with another letter to kind of test the waters and smooth things over with them before he got there. So he's taking his sweet time, okay, which I think was wise of him. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians while he's in Macedonia. So that's kind of as he's going around, he stops here uh, in Philippi, writes that. And then he goes to Corinth because he finds out from Titus, oh yeah, everything is cool. I'm not going to get stoned to death when I end up in Corinth. So he goes there um, and makes amends. Why does that matter? It matters because Paul is pursuing reconciliation with the Corinthians. He's humble 
He's selfless. He could have said, whatever, Corinthians, whatever you Corinthian heathens, you don't want to listen to me when I call you out on stuff. Done with you. Not visiting you again. But instead, he takes extra measures to smooth things out and get right in relationship. Because he realized, wow, okay, God pulled me, Paul, out of persecuting Christians to reconcile me, to bring me in relationship, bring me back in relationship with God. So I'm going to go out of my way to get right with these Corinthians, with this church. And so that's what he does. He's, he's selfless. He's humble. And as he's going along, it says he encourages churches all along the way. You know, for our church, whether you realize it or not, and especially for me, um, this has been Pastor Troy Nesbitt. So Troy started Cornerstone Church of Ames and is now the head of our network, the SALT network that we're a part of. And from the beginning of Stonebridge Church, before we were even called Stonebridge Church, Troy believed in me and in Stonebridge often more than I did. See, he was, like, he was like Paul. And he continues to stop in from time to time and, and, and encourage. See, encouragement is a sure sign of humility and of selflessness. You cannot truly encourage someone while keeping the focus on you. So let's just say you're like, I'm not really much of an encourager. That's not really my thing. Well, I want to challenge that this morning. Because if you're not much of an encourager, it's actually a sure sign of selfishness and of pride in your life. Because you can't go out of your own way and take the tunnel vision off of your own stuff going on to notice other people and then tell them, hey, great job, you're doing awesome, to encourage them. We need to learn from Paul and grow in humility and selflessness by being better encouragers, even if it's not natural to us. And actually, it's not natural to anyone. We all just want to be focused on ourselves. So we see in verses 3 through 6, moving on here, he brings financial aid for the believers in Jerusalem. And we actually learn that from Romans 15, verses 25 to 27. You can, you can look at that yourselves if you please. But these guys, do you remember the tongue twister list that was hard to read as you go through here? These guys are actually representatives of, of some of these churches where he planted churches. And, and Paul's like, hey, the church in Jerusalem is really struggling. We need to help them out financially. Can you guys give some to help? And so they send a representative with the money, um, mainly uh, so that Paul could kind of be protected. So it wasn't just Paul walking along the road with a bunch of money. So, you, you know, there's strength in numbers. But, but also just so all of them have buy-in and we're going we're gonna to go and help this church out. It's a really cool sign of unity. But, but the point is that Paul humbly, selflessly focused on the needs of that Jerusalem church. He could have been like, I'm the missionary here. I need money. Come on. Why, why would I go and collect money from these churches that I'm planting or that I've planted? But instead, he sacrifices. He's selfless. So on his way back around, they stop in Troas, and, and there he finds himself in verse 7. So we'll keep reading. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he pro- prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, 
And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that we went to Miletus, which is over by Ephesus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So we see Paul's selfless humility continue as he's at Troas. Look at that. He stays up all night to teach them. Now think about it. He's going to be traveling all the next day. He's about to leave. Okay? And it would have been perfectly fine for him to get a good night's rest. I mean, that's most of us, right? We're like, I got a big trip tomorrow. I got 12 hours on the road or whatever. So I'm going to go to bed early. And that would be totally justified. But Paul is selfless. And he's like, no, I'm going to take every last second, every last chance I have to teach them and train them and disciple them and encourage them. And that's what he does. So he's selfless in that way. But he's also selfless. Did you notice that a kid is raised from the dead in the passage I just read? So now in a pastor's view, you know, I think this kid maybe had it coming. Okay, he fell asleep during Paul's sermon. So um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But he's sitting there, right? And he's a young guy. So it's, it's probably true that he was a servant. So He was probably worn out, okay? And Paul's speaking through all the way to midnight and past. So anyone gets tired by then. I I feel like with kids, I now start to get tired at like 8, which is, I always made fun of people that happened. But there I am, falling asleep on the couch at 8. But we digress. So here he is, falling asleep, and there's these lamps in the room. And they're, they're probably oil lamps, and so they would have put off these fumes that would have made you a little, little more sleepy. So you, I can imagine why this kid would fall asleep, and then he leans back and falls out the window and dies. And notice Paul. He stops teaching. He goes down, picks him up, tells everyone to calm down. He's got his life in him. It's all good. And he just goes and eats a meal and keeps talking with him the rest of the night. No big deal. Now, this is incredibly humbling. This is, this is incredibly selfless. I mean, I would have been freaking out, okay? I, I mean, even if I wasn't so arrogant as to just be like, look, I raised this dude from the dead. You know, it, even if I wasn't that arrogant, I would at least be like, wow, did you see what God did? This was incredible. Look at that. But instead, he's just like, he does it and he moves on and he keeps focusing on what's most important and that's sharing the good news of Jesus with them and encouraging them. Yeah, of course God did that. That's what God does. I mean, when we have any sort of success in ministry, that should be our reaction. 
yeah, that's, that's what God does. We're just going to keep moving forward and, and serving and being selfless. Because this is about him. It's not about me. See, Paul exemplifies selfless, humble, servant leadership. So now we move on to the second half of this chapter. Starting in verse 17. And this is kind of Paul's leadership academy. He gets the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the Ephesian church. He gathers them together. And he kind of gives them... Uh, the, like this parting speech. Okay, so in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He's given a leadership seminar. And here's his intro. Okay, these are his parting words. Okay, his final sermon to them. And he says, you got to be humble. You got to have tears. And you got to have courage through trials. And you're like, yep, if I'm an Ephesian elder or leader and I'm at that seminar with Paul, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. You keep leading Paul. I'm out. That doesn't sound like a good time to me. Okay. Um, and I think most people would be like that. But, in, but instead, Paul says why they would, should be leaders. And he, he does it right away. At the beginning of verse 19, he says, this is how I led among you. I served God. I served God with humility. He's saying, you're, you're not leading people or or even being a servant leader. That's, that's a common phrase in our culture. You, don't, don't just be a servant leader. I'm just a servant. You know, that was Paul's favorite title for himself throughout the New Testament. He calls himself a bond servant, A willing slave. I am willingly going to put myself under the subjection of God. His will for my life. I'm a slave of God. He just said, I'm just a servant of God. And he continues, look at verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's saying here. Especially in verse 24. It's not about me. This is all about God. I'm not serving me. I'm serving God. This is how I can be humble. This is how I can have tears and really care for people. And have courage through trials. I can do this because it's not about me. And he says in verse 24, this is about God's mission for my life. It's about God's mission. God's purpose for me. And his purpose for me is to share the gospel with people. You know, Paul gave up his mission. Paul gave up his purpose, his plan for his life, and submitted to God's plan for his life. God's purpose, God's mission. So he's like, it's God's mission and it's God's message. This is God's message. Back up to verse 20. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance towards God. Faith in Paul? No, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He adds a layer. He doesn't just say faith in Jesus. He says in our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the language Paul is using is humble. This is God's message. I didn't shrink back from sharing anything with you because this is about God. It's not about me. We see more about God's message in verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. He didn't leave anything out. As he, as he led them and cared for them and, and pastored them. He didn't lead, leave anything out. Because it's God's message. It's not mine. I don't have permission to leave things out. Today in our day and age. It would be. Not leaving out things that kind of grate against the culture, like like teaching people about hell or the wrath of God or sexual sin and and how God um, has a beautiful plan for sex, but there is a wrong way to go and 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 about grace and God's justice as well as God's love. All of that, I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you, and that's my desire. That's Joey's desire. That's our desire as a church. And oftentimes I don't want to talk about those things that grate against the culture because it's hard. But here's why you do it, Paul says. You do it because you have to lead with humility, tears, and trials because you're not the point. You've never been the point, Ephesians. Matt, you've never been the point and you will never be the point of life. God's the point. It's his mission. It's his message. It's not yours. If you're a leader, and like I said, we all are, you need to hear this multiple times a day. It's not about you. You're not the point. And if you're a leader in the church like myself, you need to hear this even more than several times a day. Because we easily make it about ourselves way too quickly and way too often. So now we see this humility, these tears, these trials flesh out. We keep reading. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We see humility here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. This is this is um, this is vertical. This is vertical humility, submitting to God. I'm paying a careful attention to myself because the things I do, even beside, behind closed doors, matter. Because I'm humble before the king. I'm humble before God, first and foremost. But then he says, pay careful attention to all the flock that God's given you. This is humility horizontally. Be selfless toward other people. Pay careful attention to everyone under your leadership, he says. And then the tears come in. He says, care for God's precious people. 
And then he says, why? Why are they so precious? God's people are so precious because he obtained them with his own blood. Caring for people is hard work, right, parents? Right? Caring for people is hard. We often don't want to. It's often very challenging to care for people. There's often very challenging people in particular that are harder to care for than other people, right? That's just leadership. That's caring for people, and it's really hard. But here's why you do it. Here's, especially that person that's really difficult, here's why you do it. Because that person was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you don't have any right to treat them differently. They're precious to God. Remind yourself of that when you're struggling to lead people, when you have people that are difficult to lead and to guide. God purchased that person with his blood. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Trials. Wolves, he says. He's saying, have courage to stand up to these wolves, leaders. These false teachers for the good of the whole flock. Have courage to discern truth from error. It says twisted things. Have courage to test everything that's said with the word of God. And it doesn't line up. Lovingly confront that. We see tears. Verse 31. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three Years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Here, we have literal tears. And what does he mean? He says, admonish with tears. That means for three years, he passionately warned them. He warned them of things like this. Don't give in to idolatry. Don't give in to the cult prostitution going on in your town. It's not worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. That's not worth it. I beg you because I love you. Don't do it. He's passionately warning them. He's admonishing them with tears. Don't do it. In our day and age, don't give in to sex before marriage. Don't give in to pornography. It's not worth it. I know it's really alluring, but God has a beautiful plan, a good plan for sex and for marriage. And you're going you're gonna to screw that up. You'll create more trouble for yourself if you do that. I beg you, I warn you for his glory and for your own flourishing. Don't do that. In this day and age, Paul also might say something like this. Don't, don't get caught in the legalism trap. That's what Paul would have said to me 10 years ago as I was even starting ministry. I had in my head a lot. You have to do X, Y, and Z to be a good Christian and to be accepted by God. Lies. Lies from the pit of hell. Yes, discipline yourself to read the Bible and pray and be in community with others. Those are all great things. But do those things. Walk through those things. Not just to go through the motions, but to fall more in love with a person. Not to check things off the list. To fall more in love with Jesus. Because as soon as you stop doing those things to fall more in love with Jesus, you're falling into legalism. I think Paul would say, hey, hey, I beg you, don't fall into that. That's that's not why Jesus died for you. I mean, think about all the pointless, meaningless, joyless time 
we would have saved in our Christian lives if we just would have not given in to a legalism trap. Verse 32, humility. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we had said these, oh, sorry, we'll stop right there. We'll get to the last part in a second. So we see humility. He commends them. He commits them to God and to his grace. He lets go of these leaders. He trusts God with them. And that's what, we, that's what good leaders have to do at points in our lives. Even as parents, as we're leading our children, at some point we have to let go. Trust God with them. And it's hard to do, but we have to do that. That's what good leaders do. And it's incredibly humble. It's incredibly selfless to do that. And then Paul talks about his selfless example of working hard. He had this tent-making business to support himself so he wouldn't be a burden to anyone financially. He was incredibly selfless in that way. And then he ends with some, some statements that just get at the heart of selflessness and humility. He says, help the weak. And quotes Jesus, it's better to give than receive. If we just pondered that and lived those statements out. Oh, the humility that would flow out of our lives to help the weak and, and give rather than receive. And he ends in verse 36. We see real tears. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Tears, literal tears, because there was deep, intimate relationships going on between Paul and these leaders. That didn't just happen overnight. Paul spent time with them, really getting to know them. Not just leading them, but serving them. Pastor and author Ken Sandy came out with an article called R Before I. And I try to live by this. And some days I do better than others. But uh, the concept is this. R before I. Relationship before issue. Relationship before issue. So when I approach any conversation or meeting, here's what I try to do. I try to promote relationships first. So not just like, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. No, like something beyond that where we can really grow in relationship before we get to the actual issues at hand. That is selfless. That's hard to do because we just want to get to the next thing and the next thing. We have a lot going on. We're very busy. But yet, this is, this is what Paul says a good leader does. This is what it means to really care for and shepherd people. Our before I, relationship before issue in our everyday convos. So everyone's a leader. All of us have influence on someone. So I want you to think which leadership requirements... That Paul lays out here needs some work in your life. Maybe you need more humility. 
Maybe you just need to repeat to yourself a lot. It's not about you or have your phone repeat to you. I don't even know if that's possible, but I'm sure Siri could do it or Google. It's not about you. It's not about you today, Matt. It's not. It's about God's mission. It's about God's message. It's not about your message. It's not about your mission. It's about God's today. Maybe you just need to work on humility by just practicing being encouraging to others, forcing yourself to encourage other people until it becomes more natural. Maybe you have, need to have more tears. Maybe maybe you need to do what Paul said here. But you need to care for people more genuinely. You need to passionately warn people when they're going off track out of love and pursue deep relationships. Or maybe you just need more courage in the face of trials. You just need to ask God for more courage as as hardship comes your way in this broken world for strength. I just got finished reading a devotional called While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. And this guy, uh, Timothy Laniac, which is a fun name to say because it sounds like he's a maniac. But I assure you he's not, although I haven't met him, maybe he is. But his writing doesn't seem like it. But anyway, he decided to go on sabbatical. He's an Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And he decided to use his sabbatical to go over to the Middle East and interview real shepherds. And his goal was then to take what he found and make some correlations to what the Bible had to say about leadership. And a lot of what the Bible has to say about leadership, more than I even realized before I read this, makes the analogy of shepherding. We actually even saw it in our text this morning. It was used a little bit. And so he goes and asks some shepherds, what does it take to be a shepherd? And here's one guy's response. One of the most memorable responses came from a Jordanian shepherd, Abu Jamal. Sitting together in his tent, he contemplated before answering, what really matters is that you have the heart for it. If you do, you can begin tomorrow. He then looked me straight in the eye and said, I think you have the heart for it. I thanked him for the compliment, wondering if it was more than just flattery. A moment later, Abu Jamal indulged in some personal grief and then paid another compliment. My 13-year-old son, Jesse, had started this conversation with us, politely sipped some of the coffee, studied the rifle that was hanging in the tent. But by now, he was out playing with the flocks. Abu Jamal Jamal spoke as one father to another. My sons don't have the heart for this work, so they don't deserve the business. I'll sell the flocks to someone before I'll let my sheep go to those who don't care for them. Then he looked at me in the eye again and said, Your son has the heart for the animals, and I can see it. You tell him that he can come stay with me, and I'll give him 200 sheep, a wife, and a good good Jordanian education in any school he wants. I love that. Here's the thing. We We can pursue humility all we want and try all we want but here's what has to happen first god has to come and give us heart to lead people or else you're just going to come across as a phony you're not going to genuinely care for and lead people so i beg you to just ask god maybe you're there and you're like i just i'm i don't have a heart for it and i never may or i did at one point but i don't have a heart to lead anymore and i need one again 
beg God to give you a heart for it. I've been at points like that in leadership myself, even in ministry where I just am on my knees saying, God, I need a heart for this again. I need heart for your people once again, and he will be faithful to give you that. Let's pray. God, thank you.